0: Well, welcome, Sod Sister, to um, the uh, inaugural uh, Herd Mates podcast. So with all that clumsy attempt at humor, um, Adele, you're one of the first people I met on this journey once I got out of my own house and started meeting people in the space. But for the benefit of people that don't know you, uh, pretend you're at some kind of uh, you know, dinner party and you're, who, who is Adele Height?
1: And, and my children are nowhere around to stop me from.
0: Correct. Yes. There's no fear of contradiction or, or, uh, well,
1: my children will just, you know, yank me aside if I start yammering about nutrition just because Mm -hmm. they've heard enough already. Um, they, they usually have a stopwatch on me. Um, so how did I get here? I, I think my journey is at least as interesting as yours. And um, But there, there, there's a part of me that says that I was just, I couldn't have escaped this if I'd wanted to. Um, I was introduced to low carb nutrition through my own personal journey, which a lot of us are, when I ended up overweight and pre-diabetic and pre-hypertensive after three children and many years of eating a home cooked, low-fat, calorie-restricted, vegetarian diet. Um, And my husband married me anyway, um, so that was true love. Um, But after my third child, I just could not lose that weight. And not only could I not lose weight, but I kept gaining weight. So I'm actively trying to lose weight and I'm actively gaining weight at the same time, which was Mm. just really, um, you know, the kind of thing- Demoralizing. it's demoralizing and it also gets you labeled a crazy person. If you tell that to a mainstream nutrition person, they assume you're lying or they assume that you obviously don't know how to eat. You know, you're putting food in your mouth and you're not accounting for it somehow or you, I mean, I knew how many calories were in my toothpaste. You know, I mean, this is, because it, it was demoralizing and frustrating. You like, I'm sure I'm doing this wrong. And so you tighten down and, you know, try and cut out more calories and this and that. And um, it was just so utterly frustrating um, that I became convinced that it was something about my health, Um, my thyroid, that's always the the culprit. And back then the internet, you know, this was back in the olden days, when Mm -hmm. we didn't even have Google. So I couldn't really go to the internet and go, what the hell is going on? Um, So I went to the doctor and the doctor told me in a very helpful manner, that um yes i was obese at that point um pre-diabetic pre-hypertensive and that what i needed to do was eat less and exercise more mm. and why hadn't had a,
0: you thought of that already
1: right and he was a little guy and i would i was considerably bigger than him and i just thought i could snap you into buddy um and i really considered doing it he backed slowly out of the room and sent his PA in and um This guy, Bruce Bear, I think was his name. I will never forget what he told me that day, although I didn't believe a word of it at the time. He said, you know, you're doing this, all this exercising that you say you're doing, you probably need to make sure that you're eating enough protein because it doesn't really sound like you are. And maybe you don't wanna worry so much about the fat in your food. It might really be the carbohydrates that are the problem. And you might wanna think about just cutting back on those some and, and not worrying so much about the fat, because the fat usually comes with protein and you really need your protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought, what is this man telling me? What but year was it, this? This would have been 1999. Okay. Um, yeah. So before the second wave of low carb, before all of that, um, it, it, it stuck in my craw enough. And I'll tell you what caught my attention was the protein part, because my, during my third pregnancy, I had, I had two difficult... First, uh, my first and second pregnancy were difficult. I had um, th- th- My babies were born a number of weeks premature. My second one spent some time in the special care nursery as a result. Um, and my obstetrician had told me with this third pregnancy that I was to stop being such a strict vegetarian. Now, I didn't eat meat, but and but I just tried to limit other animal foods. I wasn't a vegan, but I just you know, eggs were bad for you, so don't eat too many of them, right? Um, so he told me <laughs> that I needed to have a big serving of protein with every meal. Um, and whether it was animal protein or whatever, he didn't care. But I ate a lot of eggs during that that pregnancy. And I think I even started eating some meat then as well. But as soon as I got home and the baby, I had a very healthy pregnancy. and um, and my third child was, you know, born on his due date, very close to it, healthy. We got to take him right home. I recovered very quickly. Um, but as soon as I got home, I was back on my vegetarian diet. And I never, it never occurred to me that it would be um, that would be contributing to my weight gain. Mm-hmm. But the protein from my from my OBGYN and then the protein from this PA they sort of stuck in my head. And I went to the Health Sciences Library at UNC because that was a nearby university, took my little one during nap time, rolled him through, um, through the stacks and started pulling out old nutrition books and reading about how important protein was, but also that carbohydrates <laughs> were mostly just for energy. You didn't need them for anything else really. Um, and that body fat was stored energy. And so I'm beginning, you know, the, the wheels are starting to turn. And I'm thinking, if I'm trying to get rid of the stored energy on my rear end, why am I just putting energy in my mouth? And, you know, the, the, the light was beginning to glimmer, <laughs> but hmm. I was still not getting it, because these ideologies that we believe in are hard to shake. Um, And I'd been a vegetarian since the early 1980s, when I'd picked up a copy of Diet for a Small Planet. So it wasn't just my health that I was concerned about, but I was concerned about all of these other political factors and changing my diet was entangled with them. But I'm at story time at the local library. (laughs) I'm sitting on the floor with my kids, and in the stacks behind me, there's a book called Protein Power. And of course, protein is on my brain these days. And I, and I grab it, and I start leafing through it, sitting there with my kids, and I read the line, no essential carbohydrate. You don't have to eat carbohydrate. If you never ate carbohydrate again, you'd be fine. Hmm. I was just stunned. Um, I couldn't believe it. Um, but... The book intrigued me enough, I checked it out, I eventually bought my own copy and I was a protein power person from mm. then on and not a vegetarian anymore and the weight came off easily and um, and something else really bizarre started to happen all of a sudden. I just I I'd, I'd been a very thin person growing up and when I became fat I was a skinny fat person. So I was sitting at the dinner table one night with my with like my hands folded like this and I felt my arm felt really weird. And I asked my husband, what was wrong with my arm? He came over and he sort of grabbed it and felt it. And then he grabs the other one, and he feels that. He goes, Dell, I think you have a muscle. Um, and I did. <laughs> For the first time in my life, I had a bicep. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was still exercising and working out. I just changed my diet. Um, And I had begun to develop muscle where I had not been doing it before, I think, because probably my protein levels have been inadequate. And that just, that just, that was it. I was sold. Mm, mm, Um, mm. Here my body is recomposing itself in a good way. The fat is coming off. The muscle is coming on. I'm enjoying what I eat. um, And I feel great. I felt better than I had in years. So 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 that's how I got there and all of a sudden it's like why had we why was I sold this bill of goods Mm -hmm. and um while all of this is going on I'm you know my kids are little I'm part of the PTA and guess who is on the PTA board with Mm -hmm. me but Mm -hmm. Eric Westman um and I start hearing about the diet that he's studying over at Duke and he hears about the diet that i'm on although i didn't tell very many people because i would get lectured for it um but we had a mutual friend and and she sort of shared this information back and forth between us so he and i used to huddle over by the teacher mailboxes and exchange information have you killed any of your patients yet eric Mm -hmm. and he's like no and are you having cravings and i'm like no (laughs) um so 10 years later when he opened up his clinic at Duke, the Lifestyle Medicine Clinic, he invited me to participate as um, an as office manager and administrator, um, but found out very soon that I could be helpful in clinic because I actually knew how to cook this food. I knew how to mm-hmm. shop for it. I knew how to make up um, a menu and, and a grocery list based on reducing carbohydrate and getting adequate protein and not really worrying about fat. Uh, so I spent uh, a few years in clinic with him, meeting patients and watching some amazing transformations and also some frustrations uh, because the diet is not, um, it's, you know, it doesn't always work uh, mm-hmm. the way that we think it should with, with uh, patients. And in doing that, my son's growing up and he's going to Cub Scouts. And who is in Cub Scouts with us but um, Alex Yancey, who is the son of Will Yancey who's another mm-hmm. well-regarded researcher at Duke and at the VA who studies low-carbohydrate diet. So he would pull up the driveway into the driveway to pick up my son to, so that our kids could play together. And I could run over to the, to the van window and say, Will, what about this study where it says blah, 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 blah. And he would explain to me what was going on. And I mean, I learned so much in my driveway, um, just from talking to Will. So I always felt like in my life, there was this sort of nudge in this direction to learn about this diet and to see what was going on with it. And, you know, I was an English major. I always enjoyed science, I love science, but I was an English major. Um, But I could begin to see where it might be really helpful if I knew more about science and knew more especially about the science of nutrition. I kept telling myself I was gonna go back and become a dietitian and learn this. And I finally, a friend of mine sort of challenged me, you need to go back do this. Mm-hmm. And and so I did. Um, and it was pretty amazing um, to begin to put the pieces together, but I really wanted to go back and find the flaws. Like my purpose for going back to school was not to be confirmed in my beliefs about the, the safety and the efficacy of carbohydrate reduction, but to find out what was wrong with it mm-hmm. because I figured I better find out before somebody else did. Um, and I didn't realize at the time that this was sort of what we would now consider a true scientific skeptic approach. Um, I learned that over time. Mostly I just, I hate being wrong. If you anybody knows me, <laughs> I hate being wrong. And if I'm going to be wrong, I want to know about it before you do. So, um, so that's, that's why I went. But during that experience, I began to realize what a politically loaded a field I'd gone into. And I'd be over my biochemistry classes where carbohydrate reduction was non-controversial. Um, it was well understood what carbohydrates did and didn't do for the body. And then I'd go across the hall to my intervention and policy classes where fat was evil, protein was disregarded, and carbohydrates were king. And it was weird. It was just weird. Um, so I'm trying to sort this all out in my brain, I think I figure I need a little more education. So I enrolled in a PhD program there at UNC um, in nutritional epidemiology, because I thought nutritional epidemiology would bridge the gap between biochemistry, which I loved, and intervention and policy, which just mystified me. And I thought nutritional epidemiology would be the bridge between the two. How wrong I was, mm, mm, I mm. did not know until I was um, well underway in that program. Um, But what I learned about nutritional epidemiology, so when you're a grad student, and maybe you learn this in your field as well, when you're a grad student, your professors will tell you everything that is wrong with your field of study. I mean, you get to see the seamy underbelly. You get to learn all of the flaws and all of the research, what we do wrong. And and I think the idea is so that we can move forward and do it better. Mm -hmm. But in nutritional epidemiology, it was like this, it was like I was in this, this bad relationship. I kept thinking, oh, well, if I just try a little harder, I'll, I'll, I'll understand it. If I just study a little more, it'll mm-hmm. start to make sense. And then finally, I had this realization. It's like nutrition, epidemiology, it's not me. It's you. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so there's a lot here that we can unpack. Um, and My greatest hope is that people who are outside of the bubbles that we first met in and still operate in um, can understand why what we've been told is the healthy diet or health food or any of those concepts. Where did those come from? When did we switch from thinking about animal source foods as essential parts of everyone's diet that we were supposed to make sure we got to where we now believe that there's somehow a health hazard if you eat too much, whatever that means. Um, How did we come to believe that we can or or a, a lot of people seeming to me believe that we can accurately estimate what free living human beings eat, we can quantify that, and then we can follow them for a period of time and look at what diseases they come down with, and we can make meaningful associations between those. And then make well, we confident. can if you're
1: in a nutritional epidemiology course.
0: <laughs> okay, for, but but as I say, for free-living human beings, or even better, for people who are used to um, conducting plant nutrition question um, uh, um, studies, and and I learned recently that that doesn't mean feeding plants to humans. It means how to properly fertilize plants. Um, or how to feed animals when you can put them into, you know, feeding studies, you know, sort of compare, contrast, um, look at, and, and we've talked about this before too, the, the contrasting animal nutrition with human nutrition from the 1970s to today. And so I, I guess putting the... the I was having a conversation with a friend just the other day, and I became aware of how much is just part of my background information that I would now wager a large part of the population isn't familiar with and is confused about. And and maybe that phrase that you just gave, nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease, is, is a place for us to start that unpacking.
1: Yes, yes, it is. Um, Because this didn't used to be a thing. Um, There was no such field as nutrition epidemiology of chronic disease when nutritional epidemiology started. Um, And so what we really have to go, what we really have to do is take ourselves back in time to a, a place where, and this is really hard for people to think about, we simply ate food so it would nourish us. Um, that was really what, what was going on. Now, I'm not discounting the, the social and political aspects of food, the moralizing aspects of food, those have been there forever. Food has always represented more than just something that you eat. But as far as public health was concerned, um, in, in the early days of Atwater, when he was telling people what to eat, that was about getting the most amount of nutrition for the least amount of money. And that was about wages, actually. That was so that we could figure out what a living wage was. But the, um, the marker was not food that was going to reduce medical costs by preventing chronic disease. The, what you were looking at, the hallmark of a nutritious diet was one that provided enough calories, enough protein to allow you to be a worker. And then how much that would cost and, um, and that's what your living wage was. And so actually vegetables were discouraged um, because they didn't provide a lot of calories. They didn't provide protein at all. Um, so vegetables were dis- they were considered a luxury for rich people. Rich people could eat vegetables. Poor people needed to avoid them um, because they were a waste of money. So you were spending your money poorly if you were a poor person and you decided to eat kale. Now, Contrast that with what we think about nutrition today, mm. right? So, so that was um, that was in the early 1900s. As the century went on, we learned about vitamins and diseases of deficiency, and this is where nutritional epidemiology started. Now, notice I don't tack on of chronic of chronic disease. It's just nutritional epidemiology, and it's that nutritional epidemiology studied the spread of disease, diseases of nutrition, the same way that epidemiology studies diseases more generally, which is you kind of look at a population that doesn't have these diseases and you look at a population that does and you try and figure out what's different between them. Um, For instance, in the US, um, the northern states did not tend to have outbreaks of pellagra and the Mm -hmm. southern, um, especially the southeastern states, did. And so we tried to figure out what was different. Well, the same things that are different now were different then, which is there's a lot more poverty in the Southern US than there is elsewhere in the US. And um, there are a number of efforts, but you know, famously we figured out that um, pellagra was caused by a vitamin deficiency um, having to do with diet that poverty-stricken people would eat. But there's a really important lesson in here, which is that because we could see that pellagra tracked with poverty one of the important competing hypotheses was that pellagra was caused by poor sanitation. Um, And then another hypothesis was that it was caused by poor diet. And it's important to know that in epidemiology, there was no way to tell the difference Mm, between mm, these, except through a more specific or granular study, which um, would test this idea of it being sanitation versus an idea of it being Mm -hmm. um, a dietary deficiency. So um, Goldberg, Goldberger, um, he would have these parties where he would have these filth parties, he called them, where you'd take bodily fluids from people with pellagra and ingest them or rub them into open wounds and things like that in order, because if it was transmitted by a germ or a microbe, then he should get it, but he didn't. Mm. Um, They would look at orphanages where the orphans, all had pellagra, but the staff didn't. Well, if it was transmissible via germ, there, you would think there would be some transmission. Um, so even though the correlation between poor sanitation and pellagra was very, very strong, it was not causal. You could wash your hands all day long and you know, have new plumbing and have indoor plumbing and all of this hygiene. You were never gonna get rid of pellagra unless you changed the diet of the people who were affected. So that's a critical piece um, that we have to understand about epidemiology. It never shows us causation. It can Mm -hmm. show predictive factors, which is I can predict that this population, because it has poor sanitation um, related to poverty, um, that it's more likely to have pellagra. And I can predict that this population because it has a poor diet related to poverty. is more likely to have pellagra, but only one of those is causal and we don't know which until we do the appropriate studies. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we took this model, which worked great on d- diseases of deficiency and also diseases of toxicity. So mm-hmm. aflatoxin, which is a mold that grows on corn, like we could track an aflatoxin outbreak um, because uh, the toxic using the same sort of tools, who has it, who doesn't, where did it start? What is it um, associated with? And then do the experiments to try and figure out whether or not those associations are causal. So we took this model. And as we began to um, discover all of the vitamins and get rid of all of the disease of deficiency and start to get rid of all, a lot of the infectious diseases as well, what were we left with? Well, we were left with an aging population that was relatively healthy, um, but that was now being stricken by these diseases chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, stroke, cancer. And um, while this was happening, so we're beginning to wonder, And Landers famously said, if we can put a man on the moon, why can't we find a cure for cancer? And so um, our nation's attention began to be focused towards how to intervene with these chronic diseases. And in the early 70s, believe it or not, and in these uh, tumultuous political times, believe it or not, in the early 70s, we had bipartisan support for a national health insurance. Medicare, Medicaid had come through and those had been considered a great success. And so um, both conservatives and um, progressives supported having a national health insurance um, for everyone. And this was going to help our nation be even healthier than it already was. So take an already healthy nation and give it that kind of um, support. But then we came to some economically troubled times in the later 70s. And all of a sudden, it was not about expanding these government programs. It was about constricting them. How are we going to save money? Well, if we dealt with hunger and undernutrition and malnutrition, now we were going to deal with overnutrition um, and obesity. And we were going to begin to intervene with um chronic disease by looking at those things. And so we took the model of nutritional epidemiology of deficiencies and we just stuck it on chronic mm. disease.
0: And, and it and, didn't work. And to your earlier point about how we we associated Plegro with unsanitary, some did. Um, it seems to me that uh, the same thing has been done with obesity such that obesity is the cause of these chronic diseases. And then you have the effort being, well, you need to eat less and exercise more so you won't be obese. So you'll lower your risk of these chronic diseases. Is that a fair? And
1: ask, is obesity predictive or is it causal? Well, it's clearly predictive, but we don't know yet with it, whether it's causal. And I would argue that... Um, If you look at epidemiology of chronic disease and body size, you have this weird arrow shift (laughs) at either ends of the U-shaped curve. So we know if people are too thin, that they're more likely to die. And if people are too big, they're more likely to die. Um, And and what happens? So if you look at the skinny end of the spectrum of that U-shaped curve, right? If somebody is losing weight, and can't keep weight on their body, mm. um, we immediately go, well, there's something wrong with you. We don't turn to them and say, what is the matter with you? Why don't you just eat more food? You need to sit down more and you need to eat more food mm. because you have, a, you have a character flaw. You have a real problem there. You, you know what the problem is? You are not addicted to food enough. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that. We say, there's something wrong with you. You might have cancer and that's mm-hmm. why you're losing weight, or you might have another degenerative disease and that's why you're losing weight. You might have something else metabolically wrong with you and that's why you're losing weight. So the causal arrow goes from disease to weight status, right? Mm-hmm. And it's clear, it never is the other way around. We don't tell people, you know, if you ate more, you'd get rid of that cancer. We don't
0: tell well, that in, to people. Yeah, in fact, how many times do we know someone who's lost a significant amount of weight who then sees some people that they haven't seen in a while, and they're concerned that the person has cancer.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Because that, that's, that, thats how the causal error works at that end of the spectrum, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, now let's right. go to the other end of the spectrum. You have a big body, keeps getting bigger. You're not really sure why, because like me, you were—you <laughs> might even be actively trying to reduce your body size. but You're your doing body gets everything
0: bigger. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: you, you're trying anyway. You're making that effort. And people say to you, what's the matter with you? Why don't you eat less? Why don't you move more? You need to quit eating those foods that make you eat more of those foods. Um, obviously you have a problem with hyper palatable foods. You're addicted to food. What's the matter with you? Mm. Nobody goes, so then the causal arrow is clearly going from the person and their, and their body size to a disease. If you don't take care of your body, if you don't make your body smaller, you're gonna cause yourself to have cancer, diabetes, heart disease, so on, so on, so on, so on. Obesity is going, your obesity, your lack of your ability to maintain the body size that we think is appropriate is going to cause these diseases. So the causal arrow there is very clear as well. Now, the question is, when does it flip, Mm. right? Well, I would argue that we are thinking about obesity and body size in the wrong sort of way. And we need to think of it the same way that we think about small body size, which is if somebody's body size is getting bigger and they're eating more than they should, they're overeating, which is a term that just drives me bonkers because how do you know when you've overeaten? Oh, Mm -hmm. you step on a scale and your weight's gone up. Well, Mm -hmm. you've already overeaten. When did that happen? And now the only a ostensible remedy for that is now to undereat. Mm. But if you didn't know you were overeating, how mm. the hell are you going to know how to right. undereat except without right. just being hungry? Yeah, so- that,
0: that, yeah we, we can put a basset on a treadmill, but we can't turn it into a greyhound. There's a certain amount of uh, biology, genetics, but you've used the phrase metabolic health, I believe.
1: Yes, Um,
0: I love that phrase. And so um, let's think about someone who's living in the middle of the country out in a rural area where they aren't getting access to, you know, a lot of research centers or that kind of thing. Um, So what do you mean by metabolic health? Uh, What would be, why would somebody maybe become interested in that concept of, you know, personally, what, what might be a, a clue to them that that's something they want to learn more about?
1: Well, just like um, poverty and poor sanitation are predictive of pellagra, but a nutritional deficiency is the actual cause, I would say that body size and obesity are predictive of chronic disease, but metabolic health or lack thereof, is really the cause. So you might be a person who's gained weight over the years. You don't feel like you've changed your diet a whole lot or changed your activity levels a whole lot, um, but you might you might be told that and you might even begin to internalize that. But if you stop eating as much as you would normally otherwise eat, you're hungry, you're tired, you're crabby. So what's going on? And I would say that there's something up with your metabolic health. We've learned to blame ourselves. We've learned to take it upon ourselves to say, oh, I just don't have the willpower or I'm an emotional eater, I'm addicted to food. Um, You know, we've learned all of those um, messages because we've been gaslighted by Mm. public health to believe that we are the problem but it makes as much sense to say um, I'm a perfectly normal healthy person, but I somehow for some reason it doesn't make any sense just eat more food than I should. Hmm. Um, That doesn't make any sense any more than a person who loses weight says, well, you know, I don't know. I'm a normal healthy person, but I just can't seem to eat enough food. We just don't. So I would say let's look at that person's metabolic health and what Often you can find when you look closer is that there's something wrong with that person's metabolic health. For me, I learned that my blood sugars were going up. So blood sugars going up <laughs> is, a, is a sign that there's something wrong with your metabolic health. Your body is not able to handle the glucose that's coming in or that your liver is making. Um, abdominal circumference, so a beer belly or a bread belly, um, when, when you are gaining weight, in, particularly in your abdominal area, that's a sign of poor metabolic health, because it's a way, um, storing fat in the abdominal area is a way for your body quickly to sort of clean out the blood supply and go, okay, we're going to just stick all these extra calories in here for a while, um, and we'll get to them, we'll deal with them later. So that's sort of the in and out fat depot, and it tells you that your body is not behaving Um, in in a metabolically normal sort of way. Insulin levels, which we hardly ever get checked, but I think it's becoming more often another way of um, checking on metabolic health. Um, Triglyceride and HDL levels, when your HDL level, that's the good cholesterol. And when those go low and your triglycerides go high, that's another example, at least for white people, of metabolic dysfunction. That seems to be less of a marker for, African-Americans and other, other ethnic groups, um, they just don't experience that same dyslipidemia. Um, those, uh, blood pressure. So um, if you're African-American, you're probably one of the first markers of metabolic poor health that you're gonna see is your blood pressure start to go up. And- so they should
0: eat less salt, right?
1: <laughs> well, your doctor will tell you that. Your doctor will tell you that you need to lose weight. You need to cut back on your sodium. And while it is true, that cutting back on sodium will have an effect on your blood pressure simply because salt and water travel together, and so you'll, you know, you reduce the sodium, you're going to reduce the amount of fluid that your body is carrying around. But your body quickly figures that out <laughs> um, and and um, readjusts. There's there's probably only about 15% of the populations that are truly salt sensitive and need to watch their salt intake for reasons that have to do with hypertension. And obesity is related to hypertension. You you know, your body has to pump uh, harder to get the blood to flow to all of that extra tissue. But if this is not, we could reduce um, a person's blood pressure without reducing their weight significantly. Um, Will Yancey has demonstrated this So you don't have to lose a whole lot of weight um, to be able to reduce your blood sugar. And we do it by reducing carbohydrate. Now, part of that is loss of sodium as well. But part of that is other effects that excess glucose in the bloodstream have on your whole metabolic profile. Mm -hmm. So all of these metabolic conditions can be addressed to a greater or lesser extent by reducing... The carbohydrates in your diet. And when I say reducing the carbohydrates in your diet, I don't mean eliminating them. And I don't mean reducing them down to zero, although you could if you wanted to. Um, but I mean, just cutting out the things that are not nutritionally dense, um, that don't have a lot of other things going for them, like vitamins and minerals. Um, and pasta, whole grains, breads, cereals. I mean, a cereal in a box, the nutrition that's in there has been put in there um, via supplements. Mm. It's sprayed on (laughs) like a Mm. tan. It's like a spray on tan. It's spray on nutrition. Um, You could just eat wood shavings and a multivitamin. It's the same difference. Um, So those are the, the carbohydrates that we don't really need. And you know, if you take those out and you put in more vegetables, which have fewer calories, And you put in the protein that your body actually needs, um, you're starting to have something that looks like a low-carb diet, but you don't have to call Mm -hmm. it that. You can just take out the unnecessary carbohydrates and um, reduce your calories Mm -hmm. and increase your veggie consumption, and those are things that public health is telling us that we need to do anyway, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that you would add the refined sugar in either adding it to drinks or sugar-sweetened beverages fruit juices probably as well. Um, that's another sort- spray
1: on nutrition. You know, you think that or, orange juice is good for you. Well, it, you drink some water and take a vitamin C tablet because that's what it is. Has mm-hmm. vitamin C added to it, the vitamin C doesn't stay in there.
0: Well, I've been on a bit of a... Investigation uh, looking into protein and how we talk about it, and um, there's there's something uh, called browning in forages when you um, make silage or hay at an improper moisture, and that browning results in parts of the crude protein fraction binding with carbohydrate in the forage material and becoming less digestible to the cow that you're gonna feed it to. And apparently when we make bread and make crust or we make breakfast cereals and make them nice and toasty brown, we're doing exactly the same thing. So the, the the lysine seems to be particularly susceptible to this. And may become essentially un- indigestible in, you know, cereals, and those are made from something that didn't start out with a whale of a lot of it to begin with. Yep. So, yep. Uh, one of these little I- interesting little interactions, um, so or intersections. Um, so, Do you want me thinking... to go back
1: to the story? <laughs> uh, <laughs> to the <sure>. 19... <laughs> What happened with nutritional epidemiology? <laughs> yeah. And how did we get here to believe all of these things were cereals and breads and whole wheat pasta was good for us?
0: Well, yeah, I guess, I guess it's important. I would think it's important for people to understand that the, what we've been told about what constitutes a healthy diet isn't as well-founded as people have represented it to us as being. And that Uh, conversely, uh, people can actually enjoy eggs for breakfast and, you know, chicken with the skin for lunch and a hamburger for dinner. And if they combine that with some leafy greens, you may find, as you were just laying out, a lot of conditions that a lot of people are um, concerned about because they manifest them may get better. And, yeah. and you may enjoy your mealtime a little bit more. Um, but that's a judgment. I don't on know. My people part, like,
1: bro. right, people like their yeah. pasta and their bread and all the rest of that. In, but indeed. I do, I do think that um, I do think that the protein part is critical. Um, we have in the keto world now, and and I have to say that the keto world is they haven't had as much time, but there has is at least as much information around the internet keto diet as there is around the DGA low fat diet, and um, and with as little evidence to back it up. So we we got to the point where we believe that whole grains and um, complex carbohydrates, mm. all of this, were healthy for us. Um, there's a, there's a scientific story, but there's a very strong political story that's a part mm-hmm. of it that we forget about. So the scientific story has to do with Ansel Keys, and I suspect a lot of the listeners might already know about him, and, and there's this notion that he railroaded through this idea that Um, saturated fat was bad for you, that cholesterol was bad for you. Actually, the the cholesterol part's not true, that was somebody else's theory, but it just goes to show you that all of these theories just sort of got clumped together um, when um, McGovern was working on these 1977 dietary goals. So he had his hearings and they had a parade of people come and tell them their theories about what diets were related to what chronic diseases. So there was Ansel Keys and saturated fat, there was Connor and Hegstead and cholesterol, there was Yudkin um, and sugar, there was um, Atkins and carbohydrates in general, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there were groups that believed that there were food additives and colorings and that was what was poisoning us, et cetera, et cetera. And the um, McGovern Committee t- sort of took all of these things and just clumped them together in a big ball and said, okay, now we've got all of the theories together and we're going to um, we're going to be able to prevent all of the diseases, all of the chronic diseases known to mankind, uh, with this one diet that's going to rule them all. Um, but the political twist to that is that around the same time, we were being faced with. Um, what we thought was going to be a population crisis, Mm -hmm. right? So the 1980s, this is, you know, McGovern's committee is in the late 70s. In the 1980s, we were supposed to have worldwide famines Mm -hmm. um, where people would not be able to feed themselves. Um, We were having environmental crises then, not like global warming is now, but at that point, it was uh, more about how much petroleum is it taking to process these things? And we're going to run out of um, energy and they're starving people in the world and all of these other considerations as well as some um, other environmental concerns um, uh, related to things like Rachel Carson, Silent Spring and stuff like that. Um, So the storyline or the narrative that got put forward is that we need to quit feeding grains to animals because the animals were a poor use of -hmm. that energy Mm -hmm. both in terms of the fossil fuels, but also in terms of just the calories. So they would say, you know, you have a field of wheat and that's, you know, 500,000 calories. Those calories could go into humans, but we put them into a herd of animals and they only make up, you know, 10,000 calories. So, but what's lost in that translation is the quality of the calorie. So, um, animals can take very low quality food in fact some food as you said with forage foods that humans can't even consume and they can turn it into very high quality very nutritious food milk meat eggs etc so Mm -hmm. if you're just counting calories yeah it doesn't look like it makes sense but if you're looking at quality of calories that's a really nice trade-off. Well, um, yeah
0: yeah we, we, we could certainly dig into that and and maybe that's for uh, uh, another conversation because it there's almost the argument that says once we've taken care of raw caloric sufficiency, right if you're starving you have one problem and you must take care of that. Um, But once we get past that and we want to think about what does it take to properly nourish a human being so that they can develop properly, um, one, to the degree that we can know that, um, that ought to be the focus on what we need to produce not looking at these sort of uh, arithmetic calculations. Number two is, as you've said, we we look at a calorie from plant source and we act as if it's equivalent as a calorie from an animal source. We do the same thing with protein. We do the same thing with micronutrients, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned the word quality. You've also mentioned nutrient density and that's something else I could go off on. But I want to get to quality because part of this also is I can't afford to feed my family on grass fed beef, right? So, um, and I've had people who I think a great deal of, but they've said things along the lines of, if you're not gonna get somebody to eat an entirely certified organic diet, you might as well let them remain on the standard American SAD diet. No. And so, <laughs> no, just so, no. No. Yeah, no. No. Ju- just no. So, so one of the best stories I heard was a story a woman told about it. It involved spam, and spam is one of those sort of quintessential bad, you know, poor quality, you know, meats. And I just want to know what do we know about these quality arguments? dreaded air quotes um and 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 where did that come from what's you've told a story about a man eating at a buffet um so thinking about people who might be listening to this who the economic challenge um is real and how can they what what sorts of options should they be looking for in the food landscape that we have at least in the United States in terms of being able to afford I'll just say animal source foods versus the plant source foods?
1: So you go in the grocery store and the white eggs in the styrofoam carton they're like 79 cents a dozen and the brown eggs in the triple fold see-through carton that are you know cage-free and, um, you know, swaddled in cashmere or whatever they do to those particular chickens, those eggs are five dollars a dozen. And I can tell you that (laughs) there's no difference in those eggs, Mm. um, except their color. Nutritionally, they're the same thing. Mm. Um, Maybe the only drawback is that you can't recycle this Styrofoam, I don't know, but you can make some cute little crafts out of it. I I don't know, you can figure that out. But there's there's no difference in the quality of protein that you're getting from an egg that costs five times as much as another egg, and this is true of just about every kind and quality of meat there is out there.
0: Okay, so you were you were talking about better quality meat when we ended.
1: So the, uh, in terms of nutritional quality, um, there's, I, I don't think that there's any major differences between grass-fed animals, pasture-raised animals, um, organic, I, I mean, organic, la- the organic label is a concept that actually went, um, just, it, it's, a, it's a word that means something, but it doesn't mean what we think it means. Um, what we wanted it to mean when it came out was something that was non-toxic something that was going to protect the environment and the farm workers um, but we should have chosen that word um, we should have said non-toxic but organic means something else um, it draws this um, rhetorical line between things that are man-made and things that are not man-made so if it's organic it's you know made by nature um, And we use it to describe pesticides and fertilizers and things like that. And so organic produce or organically fed um, animals are fed foodstuffs or are foodstuffs that are not, that no man-made pesticides or man-made fertilizers have been used on.
0: I I guess the the way that I would put it is that they've been raised using inputs that are approved by certifying authorities.
1: Exactly. Exactly. But this doesn't make them more or less toxic than non-organic inputs.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, again, uh, making, I I don't know that you're the one that said it, but whoever said it, making this information accessible and um, actionable by more people, I just, see as a critical need in this country of, um, you know, you find yourself in this condition, which we've described as metabolic health or lack of it. Um, In fact, you told me, what was it, that our focus ought to be on achieving adequate essential nutrition and then maintaining or to the degree we can restoring metabolic health. And then leave it up to the individuals to make choices once they're given the information. And those choices are going to be driven by economic situation, their cultural background, their personal choices in the moment. Um, And their
1: own personal health. mm -hmm. So, Mm you know, not everyone is susceptible to the same chronic diseases. My family, diabetes runs in my family, Um, Mm -hmm. heart disease does not, but in other people's family, heart disease is the big, um, you know, is is what is in everybody's background. Saying that there's one diet that's going to equally prevent both diseases and not raise your risk of the other doesn't make any sense. Mm. There are two very, very different diseases. Why would there be one diet that's going to prevent both of them. Um, It's absurd on its face. Um, That's like saying um, one adjustment that we can make to cars is going to prevent both traffic accidents and, um, you know.
0: Paint oxidation.
1: Exactly. Exactly, thank you for that. So it just doesn't doesn't make any sense. There are two different Mm -hmm. problems. They should be addressed differently. And what we're Mm -hmm. finding, we think, is that actually one intervention that's supposed to reduce your risk of one disease may raise your risk of another disease. So a lower saturated fat, lower cholesterol diet may or may not reduce your risk of heart disease, but it seems to impact for some part of the population their risk of diabetes. I was certainly mm-hmm. one of those people.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and so um, once again, my friend, I thank you for uh, agreeing to, to kick us off here. I'm learning um, every time about podcasting. Um, so forgive me for any <laughs> flubs and things. Every time I speak with you, I learn something. Um, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure um where can people so where can people find more uh about you what you've written um what are you you mentioned diet doctor before could you talk a little bit about that please
1: Sure I'd be happy to um I am employed by dietdoctor.com that's how you can find it on the internet um it is a health company that specializes in carbohydrate reduction for therapeutic purposes Um, We have a free continuing medical education course for physicians who want to learn more about this, but because it's free, you can take it even if you're not a clinician um, and just learn more about reducing uh, carbohydrates for therapeutic purposes. Um, It's got all kinds of wonderful information and recipes and things like that on it and and for all kinds of eaters. So it definitely has meat-based recipes, but it also has vegetarian and vegan recipes because carbohydrate reduction is a Mm. (laughs) non-denominational intervention. (laughs) Um, It is agnostic um, as to what the background diet is. You can be a carnivore, you can be a vegan, and you can still um, experience some of the benefits of carbohydrate reduction to different degrees perhaps but everybody can do it everybody can get rid of carbohydrates in their diet that they don't need that aren't providing a lot of nutrition and eat more of the foods that are providing them with protein with vitamins and minerals and things like that so um, it's it's and and diet doctor has all that, all of that information i do have a long neglected uh, blog site called eatthropology.com um Um, You can find me arguing with people on Twitter all the time, and I argue with people on all all along the um, dietary ideology spectrum from vegans to carnivores um, because I think that we are all wrong on one really important point, which is that we think we know what diet, usually the diet that we follow, (laughs) Mm -hmm. is going to prevent chronic disease. And I would argue that we know no such thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that is, you have moved into the area of belief. When you step forward and you say, uh, this diet, this way of eating is going to prevent X chronic disease or Y chronic disease or all of the chronic diseases as our DGA proposes, you're not in the area of evidence anymore. You're in the area of speculation and belief. It's a religious system. It's not a scientific system. Um, and that is one of the big mistakes. And what we've done as a result is that we've turned, um, if, if you should acquire a chronic disease, if you should um, become ill, guess whose fault it is? Mm-hmm. It's your fault right? Well,
0: and the dietary guidelines are no longer intended for you because obviously you failed. So, you
1: failed. Um, you didn't follow them and now you're sick and it's all your fault.
0: So the, the therapeutic carbohydrate reduction um, has begun to be accepted within uh, certain uh, professional groups. Is that a yes. correct statement?
1: Yes, um, the American Diabetes Association and diabetes groups um, in English-speaking countries, so in Canada, in the UK. Um, I'm not sure about Australia. Australia is sort of a weird um, anomaly sometimes when it comes to diabetes, but particularly for diabetes and prediabetes, we we have really solid evidence that we can um, put diabetes into remission. We can reverse the symptoms of diabetes, which are climbing. Um, blood, pre- uh, blood glucose and, and other uh, metabolic uh, issues. Um, and we can do it, here's the kicker, without forcing you to lose a lot of weight. Now right. it's very likely that you'll lose some weight after a while, but not everybody loses weight and um, weight loss isn't critical. You can succeed in um, putting your diabetes into remission, into getting off of uh, glucose lowering medications, all of that without losing weight um, yeah. and so you have the right if you have diabetes or prediabetes to ask your doctor to help you do that and to quit um, battering you about how much you weigh.
0: And I guess it's probably appropriate for us to somewhere along the line say that neither of us are medical physicians or medical doctors that. Um,
1: but I am a registered dietitian.
0: There you go. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So, um, and, and the information is available and we want people to become more aware of the information so that they can have informed conversations yeah. with their healthcare practitioners. And I just think it's some of the best news in uh, today's world that, that if the numbers are right and 50% of, or more than half of adult Americans have diabetes or prediabetes, Majority of those being type 2 diabetes. Um, and, but even with type 1 diabetes, there are people who are just, you know, it's not the same, but people are learning how to live with type 1 diabetes, but with restricted carbohydrate and managing all the necessary medications um, and, and finding health benefits from that approach. So it's, it's just really important for more and more people to find out about this. Thank you for all that you've been doing. Thank you for the effect that you had on, on in my life. Um, I, I do remember the night when we both felt like we had lost out at the dinner table and didn't get to sit next <laughs> to the cool people. Um, and as it turns out, I think we both won. Well, I'd like yep. to think I won. I, I,
1: oh, I I definitely did. I told <laughs> you on that on that flight to Seattle, I was banging my head against the the bulkhead going, oh my gosh, I have to learn foragery too, on no, top no, of learning no, biochemistry. No,
0: no, no, you don't. No, you don't. There's, there's a whole world of us. And it's been my pleasure to introduce you to some of them. Yeah. Um, and I look forward to doing more of that. We've got some projects in the works. So uh, in whatever comes after this, I hope we get to achieve some of them. But um. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for being episode number one and uh, all the best to you, my friend.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And I really look forward to seeing what unfolds and who your guests will be and continuing this conversation for years to come.